This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. Today is April 4th. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the elegant and charismatic Simon Belanger. My dude, welcome into the second quarter. We made it. Um, just a quick reminder, you have nine months to hit your goals and to make 2023 your best year yet. How are you feeling, buddy? I mean, we both had a pretty good uh, good quarter, but maybe maybe no counting our chips just yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling, if, if you're asking me how I'm feeling today, energy-wise, okay, because, uh, you know, baby uh, woke up a few times last night, but uh, for returns, obviously, uh, feeling pretty good, much better than uh, last year, but um, yeah, it's been a pretty, pretty good year so far. You wouldn't think about it uh, just looking at what happened for, you know, the banking system that uh, we've been hearing for quite a bit, but overall, markets have still performed relatively well. Some sectors better than others, though. If you just read CNBC headlines, we're in, uh, you'd think we've lost 50% on the S&P year to date. Uh, and, you know, y'all know a quarter is too short to measure performance against the benchmark, but at least we're not doing it weekly or daily like the financial media pundits. So we'll take our quarterly benchmarks here. The TSX composite is up 4% on the year. So, a little bit of underperformance compared to the S&P 500, which has come back 7.5%. And the NASDAQ 100 up 20%, the very tech-heavy NASDAQ 100. Now, it's it's a long game for us, but it's nice to see some green. Um, you know, I did 15.5% in the first quarter. You did 21% in the quarter. And the lovely subscribers at jointci.com uh, not only support the show there, but they see our portfolio updates and our performance every single month at jointci.com. Let's get into the show. We're going to talk about Alibaba is breaking up. Um, Lululemon put up quite the monster quarter. Dollarama reported their 97th quarter of the year. And then, uh, hey, look, Rogers and Shaw. <laughs> A deal. <laughs> Finally. I, yeah. I didn't have on my bingo card like ever happening. Uh, they five closed years that, so later. we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, five years later after the announcement. I mean, I, I, I'm exaggerating, but I think it's been like two years maybe. It's something like that. Like, the amount of gray hair that has spawned on people's hair, on their, has spawned on people's head since that deal was announced and since it closed uh, must must be astounding. Uh, it has truly been a while. All right, let's talk about Alibaba. This was a big, big story. They are going to list six of the segments under, uh, you know, new operating codes. I believe, as far as I know, I didn't listen to the call, and there's not much outside of that. There is six groups, and Alibaba, ticker Baba, will still exist as the hold co, uh, as the capital allocator, as far as I, I know. And so those segments are cloud, I don't know how to say that. It starts with a C. Digital media, local consumer services, international commerce, and China commerce. So uh, none of them produce any 
operating profit except for China commerce, which is something interesting to to look at. Yeah, I think it's Chinyao would be the the correct pronoun or somewhat correct. I mean, I'm sure yeah. we have some Mandarin speakers. It's spelled C-A-I-N-I-A-O. So yeah. however you say that. Yeah, so I think you, you're, uh, you have a pretty good guess there, I think. Yeah, I mean, I took some Mandarin courses, but that was a long time ago. So, uh, I mean, I'm a little rusty. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're probably just trying to unlock value. Feels like they're pulling uh, a little bit of a Brookfield here. But uh, um, overall, yeah. it seems like the stock reacted pretty well. But then again, there's still that clout, right, where you're dealing with companies based in China. And especially as investors in Canada or the U.S., um, there's still some pretty big risks, I think, involved. We're seeing the U.S. specifically and China, the two world superpowers kind of going at it with, uh, you know, not necessarily sanctions, but trade restrictions. We saw what's happening with the CHIPS Act in the U.S. and all the, the restrictions for the semiconductors. So, it you know, it may end up being a really good move for investors and good for the business, but it just... Yeah, there's just seems like the last time we talked about investing in China, there just seems to be even more of a clout over, um, you know, investing in Chinese businesses as a whole right now. I already thought this was a complicated story to understand. And now it looks more complicated than ever uh, with all these six groups. And look, the the big question for me is where is this cloud business value? This is the one that I'm the most interested in. The cloud revenue biz, uh, the cloud business by revenue did 77, um, I guess, billion in Chinese yuan. And that is a run rate of around $11 billion USD on a run rate for the cloud business. Yet the margins are, are negative on an operating uh, income perspective. Like it lost... 5 billion uh, Chinese yuan last year. So it's losing, it's losing around 500 million USD last year, about three, about three in uh, 300 mil in, in trailing 12 months. I don't know where this gets valued. Like it's, it's really hard to say, like they, they kind of have control of, of the cloud there in China, especially like, you know, if, these companies are just not, you're just not going to be in there and be able to use Google Cloud, GCP, or Azure, or AWS. They kind of like have this funneled monopoly. So that's interesting. But the margin profile is just not anywhere near like an AWS at a 30% operating margin. So I am so curious where the market puts this cloud business. I, I'm That's what I'm most looking forward to seeing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, look, I, I think there's just so many competing forces, right? If you just look at the business and you forget the whole CCP and the fact that it's a Chinese business, it's one thing, but then you factor in all of the rest. Um, you can't really compare it to U.S. companies that would be similar, some of the big tags, because, you know, what kind of premium do they have versus that because of the whole CCP factor and the fact it's a Chinese company. It's very difficult to value, but uh, I guess, you know, Charlie Munger and his love for China will uh, will probably be liking that, which is something, by the way, I know we've talked about it before, but that's always been a little bit, I don't know, I've found that weird. He tends to 
pumped yeah. the uh, the CCP quite a bit, or the you know, just not obviously everything. I'd be remiss in saying that, but definitely the way they handle certain economic matters uh, compared to uh, more democratic countries like the U.S. and Canada. Compared to Google Cloud, which is the smallest of the big three cloud providers, Alibaba and USD cloud business is a a little less than half um, of Google's GCP platform. And they're both losing money. Um, But Alibaba's cloud business has had a rapid deceleration in revenue growth. It was doubling year over year into the 50s and just grew last year 4% year over year. So it has come down tremendously. Um, and, and there's been a slowdown from all the, the spend on, on cloud f- across the board, but none more rapid of a deceleration than this one. Again, there, I have no, like flip a coin on where the market puts this. I, I really am not sure that's, that's going to be really interesting to play out. I think watching all of them trade is going to be interesting to play out. And of course, there's the China factor. So I don't know what premium multiple they think that they're going to somehow unlock. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's going to come to fruition like they might, uh, might suspect or might hope for. Uh, time will tell. Yeah, exactly. And I think the last thing to consider for investors, too, is, you know, if you compare it to their U.S. counterparts, like the U.S. tech, big tech has taken a pretty significant haircut for good reason. I think growth has, you know, slowed down pretty broadly for the big tech in the U.S., but, you know, it may offer some opportunities, right, without some of the risk associated with a company like Alibaba. So something to consider. Um, you can probably make a case that there is better growth potential with Alibaba. But um, some, I think, you know, when you're looking at this type of business, you have to also look at comparatives in the U.S. and see what the best value is at the end of the day. My only experience with Alibaba was we... Ju- I went to, I graduated engineering school and in Canada, as many people know, if you're not familiar in Canada, if you graduate from engineering school, you get a bachelor of engineering, they give you the iron ring on your pinky. Simon, you can see it here on the call. And my buddy lost it in the first 24 hours of receiving it. Like he lost it the first 24 hours. She's like, damn, I need to get one. He goes to Alibaba to order one, but you can only get 20 in a pack. <laughs> so he ordered like 20 fake iron rings for like 11 Canadian with shipping. And I'm pretty sure they came like three months later. Like that, that is the only thing I know about the platform. And that is hilarious. I'll never forget that. Now we'll move on to what you referred to or alluded to earlier. So Lululemon uh, had their earnings. So Q4 and full year um, here. Clearly, the market liked the result. I mean, the stock was up in the teens following the earnings release. Uh, this was in big part, of course, before uh, because of Q4 revenues, which increased 30%, and that was higher than expected. I'll mostly look at um, revenues for the full year, but I will, you know, mention Q4 a little bit here and there because clearly, you know, you know at this point what. The first three quarters were so usually the market is still even for the full year they'll be reacting to what happened in the most recent quarter 
So revenues increased 30% to 8.1 billion, 29% for North America and 35% internationally. Clearly, you know, their expansion internationally will be fueling a lot of growth, but it's impressive that they're still seeing almost a strong growth in North America. I didn't dig into whether, and I should have, but uh, whether it was more the men's segment, I suspect the men's probably increase at a higher percentage than the women's sales, in, at least in North America, because they have been pushing that. Comparable sales increased 25%. Direct-to-consumer sales increased 33%. Direct-to-consumer sales were actually 46% of revenues versus 44% in 2021. So it's actually impressive that it's increasing despite the fact that COVID-19 lockdowns are a thing of the past now. And, you know, in 2021, part of that year still saw some lockdowns. So you can imagine that there was more demand, especially for the website, the direct-to-consumer aspect there. Gross margins decreased 230 basis point to 55.4%. Operating margins decreased close to 500 basis point to 16.4%. Earnings per share was down 11% to $6.68. And the main reason for the earnings per share to be down was because they took a big impairment charge for the mirror acquisition, which was a bit of a head scratcher at the time. I mean, it was at that time that during the pandemic, right, all companies were trying to get a, a hand on to that fitness at home. You know, Peloton was at all time highs, was, you know, at crazy valuation. There was a lot of hype for that. So the impairment charge of that 500 million that they purchased Mirror for the impairment charge was 442 million. So let's just say that almost all the acquisition has been written off here. Um, what what are your thoughts about that, uh, the the whole impairment? From Mirror, I know when I go to the stores, they're really still trying to push it and they are doing some, I'll say like some innovative ideas and it seems more useful in terms of being something to bring to the stores in terms of like having that cool factor than really being a, a good competitor to the the stay-at-home Pelotons of the world. It has just shown time and time again, it's a terrible business. None of them work. Uh, you know, they always become the dryer uh, for your clothes. Like that meme is real. It exists. Uh People were never just going to be working at home forever from the the COVID tailwind. I'm not surprised they're marking down so much of this. So many things were in that era people overpaid for and extrapolated, pulled forward growth into the future far too far too much. So yeah, that's that's my only thoughts. I will say it's cool. The product is slick. It looks great from what I've seen in the in the stores but I don't know how much uh, people actually want it in their homes. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's fitness in general. So uh, one of my first jobs was actually working in uh, like a fitness center on the Quebec side over here. It was like eight, I think 17 or 18. And one of the things I noticed early on, I knew it was, you know, pretty prevalent, but the number of people that had gone less than five times to the gym in a full year that had, 
you know, get mm. gotten that full year gym membership in January and then went less than five times for the full year was crazy high. I don't remember the exact numbers, but you had people who actually purchased a membership and never set foot afterwards. So that just kind of gives you an idea of people, you know, getting, trying to get into fitness and not continuing. Um, clearly when you purchase the equipment's a bit different and a lot of these equipments have a monthly subscription. So it's kind of easy, uh, way easier than a gym where oftentimes it's longer term, right? It's either three months. You can do by month, but usually it'll be way more expensive. They try to lure you into the longer duration stuff. And it kind of makes sense that people get fed up with it. Uh, personally, I work out at home all the time. I enjoy it. I have podcasts on, but I think I'm probably the minority <laughs> than the majority there. I've been working out at home for a while now, and I just moved into my new, my new place. I don't really have a spot for it, so I'm actually in the process of trying to scheme out which gym I'm going to go to nearby. But now that I'm back in the city, I have so many options. But I actually really like working out at home. If you have the right environment, you know, if it's in the middle of your living room, it's not that good. Like something, so, there needs to be some sort of separation, I feel like, or else I'm just like, hey, dude, that couch looks pretty fantastic right now. I just posted in the doc here a screenshot of from Stratosphere. I broke out women's revenue and men's product revenue. And you can see it's now, you know, it's in the third, a third of the women's, the men's is, and it's growing extremely fast. It's gone from, 526 million to almost 2 billion in sales since January of 18 to their uh, end of year, Jan 23. So compounding at almost 30% year over year during that time frame, while the women's product revenue still compounds at almost 23% as well, like nothing to sneeze at there. So dude, this, this company's just crushing it. I would love to own this stock and Aritzia stock. I just can't because I have rules and I don't buy fashion stocks and I'm an idiot because this thing has just been such an obvious winner. Like it's been such an obvious winner, Simone. It's unbelievable how dumb I am that I can't get over that, the, the fashion risk, but it is what it is. And I, I, I can't, I don't know. I just can't do it. The fashion risk is real. Like Buffett always says, buy stocks that, you could, the market was closed for the next 10 years. Uh, you know, something you just have to own for the next 10 years because the market's closed. You can't, you can't trade it. And so many of these amazing companies, I, it doesn't pass the market closes for 10 years test. And I think it's an important test for me. So, yes, yeah, I, I mean, feel. I would argue that it does pass it just because, I mean, Lou, uh, Lou Lemon has been, you know, around now for quite some time and, you know, what people may have called more of a fad, they really, you know, it's, in my opinion, it's not anymore. They've also expanded their lines. Um, I think it's actually starting to enter a category, like very exclusive category of like, you know, Nike, yeah. for example, where it can actually stand the test of time. Uh, but who knows, right? It's just, um, you know, I love their clothes. I don't clothes. know. That's the problem. Yeah, and, exactly. and, I and I should know. See, I'm going to stand up here on the pod, okay? Let me just model everything here for you. I yeah, should I mean, know. I, yeah. I should know. 
Hey, you too. Hey. I can see you on the screen here. We're we're not sponsored by them, by the by the way. But um, I mean, I love like their work pants, for example. I love them because you know you can actually move around, but they look clean. Um, and I haven't yeah. found anything quite comparable. But having said that, just a few last things here on the results. Uh, free cash flow was down sixty seven percent, primarily due to higher inventory levels, which we did talk about that on previous earnings release and capital expenditures were a bit higher they did repurchase 443 million worth of shares during the year um, inventory levels are actually improving that's something i mentioned the last time i was keeping an eye on that as a shareholder they improve about 17 percent to uh, from their peak in october they're still high but you know, it's trending the right direction. They did say that they were, you know, purchasing more to basically be able to fulfill the, the increased demand. And it, it looks like it's working out. Was a little bit of a gamble, in my opinion, but I'm sure they had strong data to, to base that on. And they're guiding for 15% growth in sales and earnings per share for 2023. Um, the earnings per share would be based on the adjusted earnings per share, just because in this case, it actually makes more sense. Uh, because that removes the uh, mirror right down. If not, the EPS growth would probably be around like 30, 35%. So I um, I use the adjusted metric this one time because uh, it just made more sense. And the balance sheet looks flawless aside from the high inventory levels, no debt and over $1.1 billion in cash. So I'm just looking back here at the numbers. So they impaired 442 of the 500 million. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mentioned. It's like oh, it's over eighty percent. Yeah, like eighty five percent, ninety percent around there. Yeah, I was trying to find the men's and women's data when you when you <laughs> said that number. Yeah, and now it's most of it. it back, yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. oh man. Yeah, and what they're focusing on is actually now they have like some fitness classes, subscription type of things, and I they're really trying to focus a bit more on that and less on the actual like mirror hardware. Um, they said that they're not, you know. They're not giving up on it fully, but um, they have mentioned in the past that they wouldn't just plow money into the mirror acquisition just to plow money. If they do find that it's not working out, um, you know, they're they're fine with that. I mean, they would prefer that it worked out, but clearly I think now we're seeing a bit of an admission that probably not the best $500 million spent, but not a crazy mistake considering um, the overall business. Yeah, it, it, the business is doing so well that, oops, it's like, you know, we'll give you a pass. Like, oopsie daisy, accidentally blew $500 million um, when the business is doing this good. It, 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 uh, that, that problem gets shelved real quick. And you'll probably wonder, these guys always talk about Lululemon every quarter. And they also always talk about Dollarama every quarter. And that's because it lands in no man's land of earnings season, where it's just, uh, you know, it's just crickets mostly from the markets. It's this nice, calm time, and it's wonderful for well, us to talk about dollar. Unless banks are failing left, right, banks and center in failing. the U.S., but uh, yeah. Banks are failing, and Dollar M reports its 89th quarter of the year. All right. Uh, this was their fourth quarter full year results. And uh, sales was up 16.7%. Comparable uh, same-store sales growth of 15.9%. 
for the quarter and 12% year over year. Holy smokes. Uh, for To really kind of put that number into context, it's basically organic growth of the existing store base with comparable sales growth. So some things they're doing there, but it's, it's, it's a pretty much intellectually honest number of organic growth there. Operating income was up 21%. Operating margins were up to 23.6%. Earnings per share up 26%. Free cash flow um, was down 30% with a change in working capital. But you look at that earnings per share number and that the fact that they bought back nearly $700 million worth of shares. Now, they opened up again 65 net new stores which brings that share that store count to 1486. Simon, I I didn't realize until I plotted this out now on Stratosphere. So you go to their KPIs and see net new stores opened. They open net new 65 stores every single year. In 2020 they had 66, so one more than normal. It's weird how like do you think in 2020 they're like, "Ah, oh, we accidentally opened one too many stores. What is with this? Why? Like, is this I, a fluke, or is it, or is no, like, does I, management have OCD? Like, what is this? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's funny that it's the same amount of stores. I'm thinking that it's just you know what they think is manageable from a business perspective. It just makes sense. They don't want to expand too quickly. They've done it before. It's easy to do. They probably have uh, you know a kind of a plan or you know. Uh, game book or whatever gameplay yeah, yeah they have a they have a playbook for opening playbook, stores and optimizing go. them yeah but it's just weird how yeah, it's, it's been very 65 very 65 65 66 65 65 65 from 2017 now to 2023 it's just kind of weird uh that that worked out the way it did Gross profits, uh, gross margins have really just dramatically increased with bring back all the data. It's expanded from like 33%, you know, over 10 years ago now to 44, where it seems to be steady state um, here. And the fact that it's steady state is what's so impressive. All the other retailers fed such cost pressures and they have too. But they are flexing that pricing power, Simone. I've said it. I'll say it again. You know, those $5 items will turn into $6 items, will turn into $7 items, will turn into $9 items, will turn into 12 times. It doesn't matter anymore. Uh, They're able to do it as long as they're providing the value of being a really ultra low cost retailer. Yeah, and it's a wonderful business. Yeah, and I think for me, like the the gross margins, it's one thing, but the operating margins, I think that's what's most impressive. Um, the fact yeah. that it increased ninety basis points for the year, just because we're seeing pretty much across the board companies reporting, like I would say the vast majority of them are are seeing those operating margins compress, and just to see that expanding because you know gross margin is fine, but it's typically it's just related to you know your what you're buying and purchasing doesn't include all of the the overhead costs. So I think it's just um, it's it's a good metric to see that they're actually expanding on that. That's a good point because we've seen operating margins come down uh, cons- like just across the board for almost every business. You just have like exactly. labor, labor inflation. That's it. They run. I mean, I- the stores are so lean. 
just like one employee, two employees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the lines are sometimes a bit long, but I mean, uh, obviously I, well, I was clearly wrong here because I thought inflation would squeeze their margins. Um, I thought it would impact their ability to increase prices because clearly their customers are more likely to be price sensitive. I think what probably is happening is their customers um, are still price sensitive, but... What I was wrong about is that they are probably still the best value for a lot of these customers comparing to other alternatives, whether it's grocery stores, whether it's, you know, whatever you'd be buying there because they compete with several different other retailers. Um, I'm also assuming that they probably picked up a bunch of new customers that were not going to Dollarama and have started going there in this past year because it's simply a cheaper option as they're getting started squeeze and their purchasing power is going down so people have to shift their habits and this would be a logical habit shift there's so many items that, like no, into this new place now there's so many items that you just kind of got to get when you move in and i have most of them um and i just want to get this little organizer i was like oh i was you know i was at some store last night i think i get this little organizer and i was like what am i doing i can get this for like 75 cents a dollar I'm out of here. Uh, it's just like a perfect use case for the stuff they sell. And it just provides a lot of value for their customers. Mr. Belanger, the, yeah. you can finally exhale with, this, acquisition. with this deal. Yeah. <laughs> so the deal actually closed uh, yesterday. So we're recording this on Tuesday, close on Monday this week. Um, so it's finally over at uh, the $20 billion deal close on Monday following the approval from Ottawa last week. As part of the deal, Rogers slash Shaw, the new entity needed to sell Freedom Mobile to Videotron, the Quebec uh, business, uh, the Quebec-based telecom, which they also did on Monday for two point eight five billion. Ottawa also sets several other conditions for the deal to go through with some penalties if these conditions are not met or breached. Pretty significant penalties. Some of these uh, kind of main conditions is uh, Rogers will need to establish a second headquarter in Calgary and add 3,000 new jobs in Western Canada. They must spend $5.5 billion to expand their 5G coverage, invest $1 billion to connect rural and indigenous community across Canada. Videotron, uh, their end, they must have plans that are at least 20% cheaper there than its competitors. I'm assuming like they have to probably offer some plans that are like that. Um, anyways, that's an interesting one. And Videotron must also spend $150 million to upgrade the Freedom Mobile Network over the next two years. So those are some of the conditions. There's more than that. I mean, it's nice to see this finally done. Um, will it have a big impact on competition? Clearly, Ottawa is trying to, the federal government is definitely trying to get increased competition there. Um, the reality remains that it's still just a handful of comp telecom companies in Canada. So I don't know if longer term we'll see that much of a reduction in the prices for, you know, our telecom services, whether it's cell phone or internet, but uh, we'll have to see. But it's definitely making Rogers a, a bigger company going forward. I I still don't believe it. Like, you know, <laughs> you're like, I, I'm dreaming right now. This this thing actually closed. So $20 billion deal uh, Monday following the approval. 
What now, I guess, is the big question for, for this combined entity? It's obviously now a lot bigger. Uh, the second headquarters adding 3,000 jobs. There's all these kind of contingencies like, yes, we have to invest here. We have to invest in the rural and indigenous communities. All of that, I think, makes sense. They're, they're just doing what they had to do to make this thing finally close. I guess the big question is, what's next for for Rogers in this combined entity? They've had a pretty awkward two years as a company um, with their management team, their strategy, some PR blunders, to say the least. Family feuds. Yeah. Family yeah. feuds. Like what? What's next for this company? It's it's interesting to see. There needs to be some sort of turnaround culturally, clearly, and uh, yeah, a Canadian company. I'm rooting for them. I hope they can figure that out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we'll we'll have to see. I, I don't intend on putting any money into Rogers anytime soon, but uh, something just to you know, if anything, it's uh, good for for news when there's not earnings coming out. Exactly. What did this family member say to that family member today? All right, moving on it is a reminder. My section is a reminder that last year's return has no correlation with the following year's return. The returns the following year has no statistical correlation to the year before it. You scatter plot them all out. And there is literally no R-squared correlation. And I just said at the top of the show, year to date, the TSX composite's up 4%, the S&P 75 20% on the NASDAQ. Last year, for example, the NASDAQ was down 30%. It is always when market, participant, market participants are capitulated that you find some sort of bottom. And of course, from here, the market can go anywhere in the short term but it is a reminder that last year's correlation or last year's return has no correlation of the following year if we look at 1931 the stock market the s&p 500 lost 44 percent. it was down 8.6 percent the next year okay two two down years in a row 2008 you lost 36.6 percent on the s&p and the market rallied 26 percent the following year in 37, you lost 35%. You're up 29 the next year. In 74, you lost 26. You're up 37 the next year. 1930, you had back-to-back downs. As you go through this, 2002, 41. Uh, obviously, 2020. You had huge rallies after massive corrections. And sometimes you had down years. Because remember, there is no correlation. I'm not trying to tell a story here. I'm telling you the story that there's no correlation statistically in the data. And so when you hear market pundits say, oh, the market, you know, it got crushed last year. I'd park cash for a while. Just know that they are completely full of shit. That is my segment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you can't really, you know, know what the, the upcoming year will will give you in terms of just looking at the recent, even the year before, the year before that. Um, I mean, even if you look this year, a lot of the sectors that are doing well this year are the ones that were getting crushed last year. 
So I think that's, um, you know, I I oftentimes or no, once in a while look at sector SPDR, SPDR and, you know, talk about it on the podcast and just looking at it now year to date, it's pretty much that. I mean, communication services and tech got really hit hard last year. They're both up uh, 21% for the S&P 500. So I think that tells you a lot what you, uh, you needed to know and kind of adds into what you were saying. Luckily for long-term investors, there is tons of statistical correlation when you zoom out and have a longer time horizon, like that there's never been a rolling 20 years of negative returns in the stock market. And the fact that after dividends, you've approached 10% your uh, annual average annual return. It's just important to remember that the market almost never does that range between 8 and 10%. It almost never achieves that range. Yet on average, you have these huge winners and huge losers. You average out to that number. And, and it's, it's really important to remember. I, I have to look at the data again. I did a segment on it earlier this year in January, where it was like one time since the 70s that the market actually returned somewhere between 8 and, eight and 10%. Yet that was the average during the period. Uh, so math is funny that way. But uh, just a reminder, you know, stay the course. And, you know, sometimes you have a good year after what seemed helpless last year, after everyone makes money, doesn't matter what you buy in 2020 and 2021, to, oh, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought. Uh, you know, picking good businesses matter. Uh, knowing fundamentals matter. Having long-term investment horizon matters. And and now, you know, it's good to see some uh, some green again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's good for a change. But again, um, you know, some of the purchases that I've done last year, um, actually a lot of the purchases I've done last year are doing quite well right now because the market was extremely pessimistic on those names. So something to, to keep in mind when things look probably the darkest in terms of your portfolio return, if you're lucky enough to have some money to deploy, oftentimes it's one of the best periods to do so. That's right. You buy when there's blood on the streets, as they say. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, saving money. Now, the new First Home Savings account is actually uh, live, effective April 1st, 2023. I know when I logged into Questrade, they had like a little pop-up. Um, I think I logged in a couple of days ago just saying, you know, if you want to open an account, you can do so. Um, I won't go into a full overview of the account because I did do that on episode 237 at the beginning of the year. And we'll add a uh, link to the show notes if people want to listen to it. The episode is entitled, if you're searching it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, What Not to Expect in 2023. Now, the way it works is you or your spouse might not have owned a home as a principal place of residence the year it was open and the preceding four calendar years. It's essentially a mix, a mismatch of an RSP and a TFSA together. Now, I'll just give the, the main points here, but there are some nuances. So I do, uh, you know, recommend that you go back to this episode if you want to know more about, you know, this account as a whole. Contributions to the First Home Savings account, FHSA, will reduce your taxable income just like an RSP. Income and gains inside the FHSA as well as withdrawals will are tax-free just like a TFSA. You can contribute up to 40000 over your life, lifetime and up to $8,000 in any one year, including 
2023, even though the rules just took effect. You can carry up uh, carry over up to $8,000 of unused annual contribution to use in a later year. You can hold the same types of investment you will hold in your TFSA RSP. If you don't purchase a home within 15 years of opening the account, then the funds can be transferred penalty-free to an RSP or a RIF, um, which is a retirement income fund. So essentially, like I said, if you use it to purchase a home and you meet the requirements, it's essentially the benefits of an RSP and TFSA altogether. If you open it and you end up not purchasing a home, you essentially are just contributing to an RSP. That's that's essentially the, the gist of this account. It's a good tool if you're looking to purchase a home for the first time. However, um, I do question how this will help home affordability, especially some of the programs we've seen in the past five years. It just feels like it will probably make entry level homes even less afford, even more <laughs> less affordable for people just because it makes, you know, having larger down payments and that kind of domino effect. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, it's definitely if I was purchasing a first home uh, or looking to purchase one in the next, uh, you know, five to 10 years, I would uh, definitely open this kind of account because the, the tax benefit is is amazing. Yet again, the Canadian government has come out with a vehicle that is quite tax advantageous, like the TFSA, and put that savings word in. They're using S again, the first home savings account, the tax-free savings account. You know what's going to go in here? Cash. That's what people are going to do because they do that with every account that's called savings. We've been conditioned to think savings is holding big buckets of cash, not investments, not you know, equities that you can compound like you can in a TFSA. What is it? 44% of Canadians are just using their TFSA as just purely cash from the TD data and the RBC data and every yeah, single brokerage yeah. data. So roughly half, 44%. So roughly just a little less than half. That's what's going to happen with this one, unfortunately. But I'm glad they're doing something. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's just the the housing affordability problem runs so much deeper than just here's some new program. And I, I don't have a good solution for it, so I'm not going to pretend I do. No, no, exactly. And, you know, I'm not trying to look. I mean, I think for for individuals, this is a great tool. Um, you know, the, the one thing I would probably say, I the first home savings account, the, the name savings account, it's probably a little more appropriate for this one than it would be for TFSA. The main reason being that the time Super frame house. that someone will be buying a home, you know, it has to be them within 15 years of opening that account. So you don't have like, and you know, it's 15 years in investing. It's, it's long term, but it's, you know. It's not super long term. And for a lot of people, they may be purchasing a home within the next five years, right? So you may not want to put in all in on equities. You may want to have some GICs in there where it actually grows tax-free. You benefit from the tax credit. I mean, the the tax advantage is just, it's crazy. Essentially, you don't pay tax. You, you know, you get the tax credit, plus you don't pay tax on any gains when you withdraw. So it's... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're looking to buy a first home, you'd be crazy not to open that. That's my personal opinion. I think that that's a fair rebuttal, right? Like 
if you're saving for a home, it's probably it's well, based on the rules here, it's got to be within 15 years of opening the account or else they get transferred um, to an RSP or a RIF. So, okay, fair enough. Uh, you know, most people think of this account as probably like five years then. So then, yeah, you don't want to be fully in equities. But for a lot of, we'll call them millennials for a back, lack of a better characterization, for this age group of people who are buying their first home, a lot of them are going to need a long time. Uh, they're going to need 10 to 15 years of, of of savings. And then if that is the case, I do think they should be using higher expected return instruments like equities over just strictly cash or or fixed income instruments. So Which of course, is not there's more, financial there's more advice. nuance to this. What's that? <laughs> Which is not financial advice, yes, by the way. No, but none of that, this, none of this but I get what you're saying. Like basically if people, especially if people think that the dream of owning a home may be a bit out of reach, then you know, the only way potentially for them to achieve that dream is to get some capital appreciation. So getting good returns on their investments, because at the end of the day, if they don't get those returns, something like a GIC will not allow them to achieve that goal. So um, I think that's a good point. Obviously, you know, nothing here is uh, financial advice, <laughs> just our opinions on this. Uh, but yeah. I do understand it depends on where people are at. Um, but definitely super interesting. Would you use it? I know you haven't bought a home. Yeah, um, I would. I mean, I have to reread your notes here and fully, fully grasp it. I, I, I almost need to do a podcast segment on it so that I have forced myself to learn the ins, ins and outs of the account. No, I do think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you have kind of a, basically the way I'm understanding is a hybrid of an RSP and a TFSA. It's kind of like the best of both is in, in one spot. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. I mean, that's my understanding. And um, yeah. No, it's uh, what it's uh, boat world eight eight k. You can you can contribute up to forty k yeah. over your lifetime. Okay, aka over this fifteen year period of opening the account, or also to yeah. get transferred, and eight k a year, including this year. Even though it didn't really come into effect until April first. Okay, so eight k even this. Oh, then then hell yeah, I'm gonna. I'm going to max yeah. this. Yeah, I would do yeah. it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I would do it if I was like looking to purchase a home in the next 15 years and I haven't um, owned one in the, I think the last uh, four calendar years or my spouse, I would be, you know, I'd, I'd already have it open probably. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, no, thank you, Simon. This is, this is amazing because I'm glad you brought this up because you're right. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that this is, a thing yet i mean it's brand new right they yeah three days ago three days ago you could open one yeah and worst case you know you don't use the money and then you have it for your retirement through rsps that's kind of yeah and then you just basically contribute contributed to an rsp and got the corresponding tax credit and then you know it rolls over to an rsp so you get taxed on it when you withdraw the money because you didn't use it for the uh, intended use but i mean that's a pretty good risk i think to take even if you're not 100 percent sure that you'll you'll buy the home but again this is just my opinion people may have different opinions of that honey we're opening a fhs 
eight tonight. <laughs> uh, okay, wonderful. This is great. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, today was April 4th. This will come out on Thursday because it's a Thursday release. This episode, this podcast is twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. We appreciate you coming around. If you haven't checked out stratosphere.io, a lot of the data that I'm talking about, you know, the men's versus women's clothing revenue at Lululemon or the cloud revenue from Alibaba, all six segments broken out by revenue and operating income, Dollarama's net new stores, I use the platform a lot for this. This is screenshots galore all over uh, the dock here for you, Simone. Um, that's at stratosphere.io. It's completely free to get started and use. If you do want to join the paid plan, it starts at $29 a month, and you can use code TCI for an additional 15% off. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.